0: This is series four of Brave New Girl podcast. I'm Lou Hamilton, artist and author of Brave New Girl, how to be fearless, Fearless, and my latest book, Dare to Share, helping you become an awesome guest on podcasts, raise your visibility and attract new audiences into your world. I welcome you here to stories of real life, brave new girls who share with you how they found purpose and courage on the rollercoaster journey of entrepreneurship and creative enterprise. This week's guest is Melanie Maharachi, who co-founded Cambridge Global Ventures INC after a decade in the US aerospace industry, from Elon Musk's SpaceX program to Boeing to NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, where she designed the wiring system for the spaceship rover that landed on Mars in 2021. Welcome, Melanie, to Brave New Girl podcast. Hi, Melanie. How are you? Good. Hey, hello. How are you? I'm very good. I'm, I'm in... London in the autumn, and uh, it's lovely summer's evening, and you're in LA, is that right? Yes, Los Angeles, beautiful, sunny day today, um, mm. September. <laughs> Gorgeous, yes, I know, I love this time of year. So, the last kind of year and a half has been sort of fairly drastic for, for everybody across the globe, and and I wonder, you know, you're a founding partner of the Cambridge Global Ventures, Inc., and you aim to fill the gaps for investments in environment, social and governance. And I just wondered if you can explain a bit what that is and and how in the last 18 months or so that has been affected and, you know, what what you've seen from that side of things.
1: Yeah, so um, let me take a minute to tell you how I got into open Cambridge Global Ventures and how uh, thought came about. I was an engineer for, you know, over a decade. Uh, When I went to business school uh, in 2019, um, I was pretty sure what I wanted to go do after my MBA. But during my MBA, my post-MBA goals kept changing. Uh, because I was introduced to new uh, material and, you know, new uh, discussions and information. And then I took a step back and I thought it's just like all these shiny things that like the consulting and, you know, being in technology. Um, and I took a step back and I thought, what do I really want to do with my life? Um, and I realize um, my whole career I have contributed to the advancement of technology and aerospace and technology. And whenever I go back home, Sri Lanka, or travel to you know Asia or you know maybe developing countries, I, I saw uh, an emptiness in me. Do I am I doing? The right thing. Do I want to continue in aerospace? And then I realized there are so many problems that you know we can address, uh, and that very few have taken you know that and and really looking for solutions and finding you know some sort of like a help to elevate some of these problems. So after my MBA, I thought I I looked at environment sustainable governance as kind of like a vehicle for me to do whatever I want to do after my MBA, uh, where I kind of contribute to the environment, contribute to the governance. You know, we have a lot of women problems at work, like, you know, hiring women and keeping them in their jobs. So I, I realized I cannot just take one job and address multiple problems. So I thought, okay, what I see is there are gaps in these investments for women founders. There are, you know, it's hard for them to, you know, it's only like very few percentage of female founder startups get funded. Uh, So there is kind of reason for that. Then, you know, I am very passionate about, um, you know, the green energy and, you know, the environment. So I thought I'll go head on and, you know, open an investment company and do a fund uh, so I can go around the world, find these small startups or technology companies which are, you know, looking to raise Um, money to kind of you know develop their companies so that's how my Cambridge Global Ventures came to um, start about. In the last 18
0: months or so people have had to you know they've had to adapt and change and pivot their businesses and maybe even start again and
1: so I wonder what you've seen in that landscape. Um, Good question. So, uh, you know, for the last 18 um, months, uh, millions and millions of people um, got furloughed. Uh, They lost jobs. They had to rapidly adjust um, their work front, right? And uh, before COVID, the largest uh, disruption to work has been new technology and growing trade links. First time after COVID, uh, a third element is contributing to disruption of work. That is, um, it elevated, the COVID actually elevated the importance of your physical working space. Um, So I can tell you in US, um, you know, I've been interviewed for like, you know, Five, six times for companies. And uh, one of the things companies, when they're interviewing, they stay away from asking personal information with, are you married? You have children? You know, just personal information was just like a no go space at work. But with COVID, uh, your personal space all of a sudden, uh, it became the most important space because you were you started working from home. Uh, so I feel like one good thing I see uh, in COVID is just uh, really kind of expose everybody's life into professional space. That really um, uh, grew empathy in, you know, uh, employers and among colleagues Uh, grew a lot of empathy towards each other and some of these um, people who have lost jobs you know when I'm talking to some of these startups which started like a year ago those were spin outs from just losing jobs or getting furloughed or you know maybe being sick or having to take Care of children, some sort of way, just pivoting their lives. And you know, I see there are a lot of startups have come out, a lot of great new ideas come out uh, because of COVID. But at the same time, uh, the biggest thing I see is people have realized work is not their number one priority in life because of COVID. I even the most workaholic. Friends that I have spoken to during COVID or now post, I mean, almost post COVID, hopefully, and they uh, think about being more involved with their children, growing children, growing young families. So I, it makes me, in some way, because I'm a parent and I have you know older kids, makes me happy. Uh, it's just that you know my colleagues who have companies, they came to know about their employees and their families and their challenges um not only that the actual workers actual employees they grew empathy towards each other in the family right and some of these husbands or maybe wives when they go to work they just don't see the struggle Uh, of the other parent who's taking care of the kids. You know, taking care of kids is such a complex uh, thing. And uh, being able to uh, work from home and seeing and growing this empathy towards your even partners, uh, I think it's such a great thing that has happened during this pandemic.
0: And when you were a child, were were you the daughter of of working parents?
1: What was your childhood like? Okay, um, so I have two brothers. One is older, and one is younger. So I was um, I'm the one. I was the only um, daughter. Uh, my mom was a full time uh, homemaker, uh, and you know that's how it was for most of her siblings or her sisters. Um, except one who is a teach who was a teacher and and my father was working full-time and it was just a normal you know sri lankan family we were very middle class uh, family um yeah and you know i didn't have all this access to technology and you know everything but you know i uh, i was a tomboy you know i was um you know, playing with my brother's friends. And, you know, obviously my, my friends' parents didn't allow their daughters to come to our place because there are two boys in our family. So I ended up playing with, you know, my brother's friends. Uh, they kind of, I think, put a good foundation, you know, later on, years and years later on when I became an engineer. For me, it was, it was um, such an easy thing to be around men. Because, you know, my childhood, I was around a lot of guys. So, yeah, my, my childhood, you know, there were, you know, we we grew up in um, a civil war. Sri Lanka, you know, there was an ethnic war. Uh, so because of that, you know, there were little struggles for many of us. It doesn't matter whether you're Tamil or saying hello, you know, you were in a war. Uh, but it, it was a, a norm for everybody. Uh, nothing special or traumatized for me so yeah I I had a very happy um, you know very content simple life and you were
0: obviously very bright I mean you went off to do your BSc in mechanical engineering at UCLA and then as you said an MBA later at the University of Cambridge so what was the decision to go and study mechanical engineering then (laughs) So
1: when we moved to U.S., um, I had already two kids. Uh, My kids were three and four and a half, so they were very young. And we moved to U.S. for their education and to give both my daughter and my son the equal opportunity and in Sri Lanka although I was very good in science and math my parents didn't want me to go to engineering university uh, they wanted me to become a doctor so um so I did not want that cycle to continue with my children uh, because my parents were a big um you know they were involved with my you know um, their grandchildren so I want to make sure that both my children, especially my daughter, has the opportunity that my son would have. So we moved to US in two thousand three, uh, and uh, when I when my children started going to school, I realized uh, uh, I don't know anything about US. I don't know anything about US history or you know the US education system. I really didn't want to. Put my children's future on the hands of the teachers. I wanted to help my children on the side and make proper decisions with their education and uh, what I want them to study or you know help them with what they want uh, to excel in you know in the future. So the reason I went to actually university to help my children, it was never a thought of. Uh, me wanting a curry, but uh, the the consolation prize was going to school to help my children was. But- you know, eventually I had a good career. Um, and I thought engineering might be the easiest because English was not my first language. Uh, what do I want to study? Hmm, maybe mathematics or engineering because I you know it's a universal you know um, um, universal thing, and I don't need to kind of sweat on English. That was my strategy. Uh, It never really uh, decided, okay, I really want to be an engineer and have a, you know, fantastic career. But I think it was just because of children. And then I uh, took classes and I realized I like doing things hands-on, to build things, to break things. And, you know, I mean, growing up, my mother never gave me even a nice pyrex dish dish to my hand because I she knew that I would go and tap it and see whether it's breakable because they (laughs) say pyrex don't break um (laughs) and so likewise you know I love to disrupt things and you know just break it apart and you know you know putting together so I thought mechanical engineering would be the idea for me uh so that's how I ended up studying mechanical engineering
0: and so then you entered the US aerospace industry. So how did you go from mechanical engineering to deciding that you wanted to be a sort of robotic engineer? So you got into Elon Musk's SpaceX and and yeah. then Boeing Commercial and then NASA's Jet Propulsion. <laughs> so <laughs> so for someone that kind of had had sort of almost by accident ended up going to university to do engineering. Yeah. You sort of end up in, in a pretty dynamic industry. So I
1: think, you know, we all have our aha uh, um, I, I keep saying to a lot of people about this aha moment. Um, in 2000, so I was already in the university um, and was non, had no clue what I was wanting to kind of major in, but it was my first year. So 2004 was first year after we um, immigrated to U.S., So we thought, okay, where where we want to learn about this country and be inspired. Where do we want to first visit, take our children, inspire them? So we took a trip to, you know, 2004 summer, we took a trip to Washington, D.C. to show our children that's the heart of U.S. And so anyway, we, we, even we wanted to see, you know, Washington DC and you know get inspired and you know be very motivated um to do well in this country. So there we we, we went to um Smithsonian Um Institute and there were they there they were you know the Space Museum. And somehow like it just you know, more than my kids, I was like the kid in in the mm. candy store. I was just Yes, was dumbfounded and and mesmerized by uh, by what I was seeing, and then there there was they were showing these little documentaries, and one of the documentaries was the two thousand four rover landing. Uh, so uh, I think that happened same year. No, I take it back. We went to um, DC in two thousand five. So, Rovaland in 2004, and they were showing that clip, um, like a half an hour documentary. And so, we were so excited, we bought tickets and we just went in there. So, seeing all these uh, scientists uh, talking about Mars and their contribution, uh, I felt like, oh my God, I want to kind of be there. I want to... Talk about Roe. I want to talk about Mars and the contribution. Uh, and I, I felt like I want, I wanted to jump out of the seat and be in that movie. Uh, I, I felt um, so. At the end of the movie, uh, the whole audience erupted and kind of clapped. Right? It was such a proud, uh, patriotic, you know, American moment. Like it's such an accomplishment. So now I thought, oh my god, I want to be there. So then I, you know, I went back thinking about this movie quite a bit and I thought, why not? Why not? I, you know, I'm a housewife and it's just non-traditional student. you know, there's nothing that anybody can say we cannot. For mothers, you know, you have to put, anybody, you have to put, set your mind into it and you can achieve it. So... I mean, 2005 to 2015, you know, when I joined NASA, it took me 10 years going through schools and getting into SpaceX and other, you know, aerospace industry uh, jobs to actually qualify my, myself to one day be in NASA. So my aha moment was that, you know, this fun trip to DC.
0: I really want to hear about your, your time at, at NASA's Jet propulsion lab because I've I've just watched the there's a film I don't know if the listeners have have seen it but it's it's called seven minutes of terror yes and it documents the uh, the rover landing on Mars and I wonder mm-hmm. whether you can kind of talk us through that and and try and explain what happens as it comes through the atmosphere and and all the things that you had to kind of put in place for it to be able to land
1: safely yeah Um, So, my team designed the mechanical layout for the electrical system. Uh, Electrical system after the structure is the heaviest in the system. So, we emphasize heavily on the weight. Um, uh, Every kilogram of the payload uh, is costing millions and millions of dollars to launch. So um, usually the structure and the electrical system is uh, heavy emphasis uh, with the weight. And and of course, the electrical system kind of um, do all the um, powering for the whole rover. And my team uh, designed the mechanical layout for the electrical system. Um, And so we worked interchangeably with all the uh, systems um why i like my job is because it's the nervous system of you know like the human body nerve system it goes everywhere that means it allows you to learn about every system possible you get come into contact with every scientist every engineer who designed the mass rover uh so you you get like a good birds eye view and and a not a very deep understanding technical side but at least understanding of every camera to you know you know drill to everything what it does in Rover, we get to learn about it. So that was the fun part of my job. So seven minutes of terror is where when um, uh, rover enter the atmosphere, uh, we have um, no communication at the time uh, in Mars, it's very thin atmosphere and it's not like in uh, earth where we we can deploy a parachute and you know it just like slowly moving and descending down. it it happens very quickly the descent and it happens very fast and it goes through a very thin atmosphere and uh, and also the the communication lag Um, So, we have a communication usually lag, 4 minutes to 20 minutes. So, depending on the position of the Earth and Mars, uh, there's a communication lag. So, that 7 minutes of terror is the communication lag. Uh, and, you know, when we erupted, when we erupted and clapped and jumped, when we realized we were just landed, but actually that landed seven minutes before. Uh, we only came to know about it, the we got the communication seven minutes after. Um, so, last rover in 2012 what we um landed uh we didn't have the microphones we didn't have a microphone we didn't have um um i I believe edl like a downward camera so this time we put those cameras because at least we wanted to kind of hear what it's just, just a lot of equipment we put there but that that Uh, Seven minutes of terror is something that we cannot avoid. It's the communication lag. Um, So that's kind of the the unknown. So scientists, we just, as scientists and engineers, we want to know everything. We want to make sure 100% accuracy. But somehow the communication lag, that seven minutes, just takes us all our nerves apart and flap it everywhere and we thinking all the unthinkable and we cannot get rid of that you know that communication lag so i think it's like kind of the um yeah that's what it is and um, yeah we all go through that uh, but it ended up, you know, it was a successful launch in 2012 and in 2020. And it just shows how far Mars is away. That
0: there's a lag of of is it 14 minutes or seven minutes that the lag? Uh, so so uh,
1: 2012 uh, rover landing, there was a seven minutes lag. So that's why it was saying, you know, seven minutes. Tara, uh, this time I, I'm not sure. It, it could be. That's why I said it could be four minutes to usually twenty minutes. But obviously, we we planned when the lag is minimum. Uh, so it could be four minutes to ten minutes lag.
0: And there's so many things to go wrong. I, I from watching it, it was just it looked, you know, it's coming through the atmosphere. It's heating up to what sixteen hundred degrees yeah yeah. um so it's that's very very hot it's coming it's coming through it's coming extremely fast yeah you then designed um or the team designed a parachute that even though the the rover capsule was only 100 pounds yeah um you had to design a parachute that would withstand a much much bigger um weight yeah yeah. Uh, because of the force that it was going the speed that it was going through yeah and then there was abandon the parachute and yeah. there's there's a there's kind of a rocket thing that that yeah. then kind of th- so it's kind of it's slowing it down a bit more with the rockets but then yeah. it has to detach from the rockets yeah and fire the rockets sideways so it doesn't then Crash into them, yes, and then this little tiny dainty little capsule kind of lands on on the on the surface. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's dreadful
1: Yeah, so I think you know the um, EDL um, landing team. Um, they are, you know, they did a such a great job of redesigning the landing system in 2012. So if you see 2004 landing, they land, the rover was small. It was like a tiny rover. And they landed, uh, the rover was inside, and then the outside, it was just like a big ball, like a air bubble. And so they landed the rover like a big air ball and that it went stumbling and stumbling. And I was thinking, you know, when I was seeing that uh, um, video in Smithsonian, I thought, okay, this landed right exactly how they wanted rover to land. It was not upside. You know, the ball could land however it wants. Uh, but this landed somehow how it was. And then the, the whole ball bursted and the rover just like nicely drove um you know right <laughs> uh, and 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 i really thought you know this is such genius even like we didn't know at the time the sky crane just the ball and having this big air ball and then the rover to at least just come to a stand with the right coordinates i mean it's just ideal team is such smart you know, experienced
0: team at JPL. It, it really is. It's really extraordinary. When I was drawing for my Brave New Girl book, one of the the drawings that I did was of Brave New Girl with the rover on on Mars. Okay. And I never thought that I would actually get to talk to someone that had helped to kind of just dis- be part of the design <laughs> team for... <before. laughs>
1: My so I'm pleasure. really
0: excited. I'm a real-life
1: brave new girl. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, Lou. Yeah, you know, I mean, it just we, we I mean, it, I'm I'm very proud to be part of the program. Yeah, uh, and that I can forever brag to my children, um, mm-hmm. and and hopefully one day to my grandchildren. And and coming from Sri Lanka, that was that is just a dream. You know, it is absolutely a dream for a girl. Uh, you know, for a woman to be part of such program because, you know, I mean, we were not growing up uh, being able to dream such big things. Um, and and so that's why I'm doing, you know, a lot of podcasts and, you know, I have my nonprofit. It's just being able to allow girls to be able to dream big like anyone else. Um, and and mm-hmm. that that is achievable. And you did found a non-profit
0: organization in 2015, and Uh it's called iSTEM Without Borders, focusing on underprivileged students and women and helping them to pursue and and thrive in STEM careers. So what have you tried to do with that organization and how are you reaching those students?
1: Um, So I, you know, when I was at JPL, I mean, when I started my career at SpaceX, I really wanted to, that was also a dream. I mean, when I joined, it was a startup, you know, maybe like 300, 400 engineers. At the time, it was small. But eventually, after a year or two, I realized this is a dream come true. Uh, And how how would I help other people like myself, uh, you know, just living their dream? Um, and also I saw struggles as an engineer, uh, and I really thought, okay, um, I have not been mentored by anybody. You know, I am at school, just gave us so much of like made us book smart. Uh, but I never had the chance to have a proper mentor, a proper guidance so that Everybody don't have to reinvent the wheel when they are going through their STEM careers, and I really thought, um, looking back at my career, maybe it was just a year or two. I realized there are gaps that you know that women and men face, you know, gaps of experience uh, women uh, are going through, and and it has been a struggle not just for me, and I really thought. Um, This is something I can educate our future generation. Uh, I I was thinking about it, but I never kind of acted upon it up until 2015 when I went to NASA JPL. JPL, NASA uh, is different. Uh, It's not always work, work, work. They also empower, they have a lot of outreach programs. They actually help you give a lot of tools when you really want to Kind of work with schools and you know students and empowering them. So I took up that opportunity and resources, uh, and I um, was going to you know high schools and just like giving talks. I mean I, ha- I didn't have my nonprofit at the time, giving talks and you know I realized the response was so um, overwhelming. But uh, my, when I when I actually decided to open my nonprofit. This also happened uh, with the incident. I was uh, asked to go as a judge to a um, high school, um, um, like a, it, it was a East LA, um, like a small school district, um, and uh, I was asked to come as a judge for a science, you know, fair. So I went with my daughter, and uh, I was judging, you know, this um, ninth, tenth grade uh, student work. And I was so surprised by, you know, I expected some sort of electronics and, you know, just like, you know, just like the access that my children had at the time. And I expected that kind of science projects. But what I saw was these children were solving real life problems. Uh, You know, this one student, she had made this um, with home made solution she had made how to remove graffiti graffiti has been a big problem it is a big problem in east la and she saw that and and she was just you know you you know made a solution and it just with you know uh, it's very inexpensive and you know how to make scrub with like salt or you know um uh, sugar, so um, it's simple things, but they were very passionate about how they spoke about it, how they are looking to find, you know, um, um, solve the you know neighborhood problems, and then I realized it, it's because they only see what they can see around their neighborhood. What if I can show them the bigger problems? Right. And the same mind can and, you know, just can do wonders. So it just we have to show them the problem. We have to take them to the resource. So that's when I decided I'm going to Uber and open my nonprofit and kind of allow these students to see the bigger world problems and bring them in. I'm very interested
0: in this idea of of being able to see the bigger picture because we're you know we're sort of used to the idea of creating goals and creating visions, but they're very much tied to what we already know and 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 sometimes we almost make our visions too small and yeah. and as you say, you know that these girls were solving problems in their immediate vicinity, but then you open out the world and then they can see bigger problems and and potentially bigger solutions mm-hmm. and that's how you sort of open people's eyes and and people's belief in themselves that they can can do bigger things than they even imagined just like you seeing that documentary in the in the museum and suddenly having that aha moment wow i i can do something like bigger. really massive, really yeah. extraordinary, yeah. and and you know very often people think, well, you know, who am I to to think big? And but I think, you know, who are we not
1: to? Exactly, I I think Lou, um, one of the things, um, that over the years that I've learned is, um, women, um, I think women and women both, uh, we we try to live within the boundaries that others have put. Uh, I, I, you know, we, we just want to fit in. We just don't want to stand out. It's, I mean, it's okay if it, that lifestyle fits you, that's okay. But that's not going to solve the real problems, right? Somebody who step out of those boundaries, kick the boundaries out, uh, you know, uh, go figure how to um, kind of uh, have an impact in your society uh, is what is important. And, And, you know, I mean, I go to Sri Lanka and most of my friends at my age, you know, they are housewives and that's their chosen Uh, That's their chosen path. And a few of us are career women. And I feel like we always have to defend being a career woman is not about money, bringing income. It's not about my husband cannot feed us put food on the table. It's about, I feel, um, um, having contribution to the society you know you're contributing society having having some kind of a um, place in your society that that, that your um, career plays a huge role in what you do in your society it's not or you know paycheck is nice but but it's not always the paycheck so i think when you are thinking in terms of your career as your contribution to the society then you think big not you are not putting yourself in boundaries and say, okay, you know, this is what I can do and that's it and a good paycheck. Now, are you satisfied with what you're contributing to the society? You keep asking questions to yourself. That's how you propel yourself to do bigger, better things.
0: I always love the image of the iceberg and that as humans, we tend to just live that our, our whole potential is the whole iceberg, but we tend to live just on the little tiny tip of the the, yes. the top. And you know, we have massive problems that we need solving, like saving the planet. And and so yeah. we sort of do need to kind of open our consciousness to to thinking bigger and to solving those bigger problems. So I love that that you're encouraging young people and disadvantaged people too to be able to kind of step out and think big and look outwards. Thank you. So I wonder what your what your vision for the future is?
1: <laughs> um, you know my um, yeah, my vision for the future is for women to have the equal contribution to the society, to the technology Uh, to whatever we create, the equal contribution. Um, And I I have worked in many, many teams, uh, which are highly innovative, highly technological teams in SpaceX and in NASA, and I saw how little the female contribution was. Um, and when I see the teams and the most successful teams I have been in and the most innovative outcome came out of those teams, they were the most diverse teams. So we, we often talk about the diversity and inclusion and equal opportunity, but I have seen firsthand uh What the diversity means, what it does to the outcome of you know the human creation. So I think um, if we want to propel this world or this universe to a better place and to a more advanced place, uh, and um, we need to have, we need to be solving problems both men and women equally, so that the outcomes are uh, good for the all humanity. You know, sometimes the men cannot think what we need, you know, what we want. And it, so we cannot complain without being involved. So, you know, my message to, I mean, what I want is a perfect world. I don't know when that will happen. Hopefully my daughter's generation it, It's not that far. Um, it, it's, it's not even the blame. There have been some, you know, uh, uh, stereotype in our society that stop women from contributing equally and and I know this with this me too movement, uh, you know black lives matters. Um, you know these um these issues probably will solve pretty soon. Uh, and I'm very excited
0: and that's the brilliance of of the human. Psyche and the and of humanity and of the human mind is that we do evolve and we do see when we're doing things wrong and we we are able to adapt and change and become better in the light of that and and everything that you've experienced yourself and the challenges that you've been through and that the challenges you've seen other women going through how do you
1: define courage courage you know i i look at myself and i think courage is Being able to express yourself when you're an individual, you should be able to express what you want uh, and you should be able to express when you're upset and sad. Those are, you know, being able to express and do what you want. I think the courage is to be able to express yourself. Thank
0: you so much, Melanie, for your contribution and for being such an amazing, incredible role model for young women around the world. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melanie, for showing us that anything is possible when you set your vision and take consistent action towards it. You can find out more about Melanie's work on www.cambridgeglobal.com and follow her on LinkedIn at Melanie Maharachi. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week.